Welcome to Cotton Specialist Corner. I'm Seth Bird. Today, we're going to do an overview of fiber quality. I'm sure that we're going to revisit this topic several times over the course of this podcast and maybe do some season reviews. But today, we really want to just talk about some general fiber quality issues that we see in different areas of the cotton belt. So to start off, as usual, we're going to go to our introductions and we'll move out to the West first and Dr. Huttmacher. Okay, I'm Bob Huttmacher with the University of California Cooperative Extension Specialist Agronomist, and I'm located in the San Joaquin Valley cotton production area. Thanks, Bob. We'll move to the middle of the country there. Tyson. Hey, I'm Tyson Raper. I'm a cotton specialist with the University of Tennessee, located in Jackson. And then we'll end up there in North Carolina, Keith. I'm Keith Edmiston at NC State University. All right. Thanks. Three y'all for joining and you know fiber quality is something that's going to be a topic for every producer and it really changes across the belt you know the issues that we face that need to be addressed and I think this is a really good cross-section of the belt to discuss it with so just to start off with and we'll go back to you Bob what are you know the main fiber quality concerns for your region and you know what are the factors or conditions maybe that cause those I think like a lot of locations the primary ones since we're you know, known and trying to produce a real high fiber quality cotton, both in some of the upland acreage that we have, but also in all of the Pima acreage. Length, strength, micronair always are an issue. And to some extent, some of the uniformity fiber issues are something that can be a concern some years. And part of that, really with the long season uplands, but with all of the Pima varieties that we grow, they tend to be quite long growing season varieties. So we have everything from early set fruit, from blooms that might be as early as early June, all the way to a top crop in a lot of years that may be set in late August or to some extent if people are really pushing it all the way into early September. And because of that, we have a range of maturities of the bowls and all that can kind of contribute with all the differences in conditions that that can contribute to, you know, quite a bit of variability in those fiber characteristics. Thanks, Bob. Tyson, same to you. You know, what are you concerned with there in Tennessee and maybe even the Mid-South as a whole? I think the parameters that are most often mentioned in conversation, number one's micronair for us. Occasionally, we will have fruiting gaps that can create some high mite scenarios. We also have some varieties that, if not properly managed, particularly at the defoliation time frame, we can see micronair climb. Here recently, we've had a few varieties that tend to run a little higher on leaf. That's definitely moved into the variety selection decision a little bit. And one that's been interesting to watch, strength. We've got some differences in some of our cultivars from a strength standpoint. And from some of my friends on the broker side of the industry, they've indicated that strength is a very important parameter on moving bales. So those are typically the ones we discuss. I've been excited by some of the trends we've seen in length recently. We're not necessarily capturing large premiums there, but it is nice to see fiber quality in the Mid-South from a length standpoint 
really begin to increase. Yeah, that's a good point, Tyson. And Keith, same to you. You know, you're over there on the East Coast. What concerns do y'all typically run into there? Well, certainly all the parameters that Bob and Tyson mentioned were probably a lot more like Tyson and that probably our biggest concern is micronair and low staple length sometimes. One of the things that seems to be going on is there seems to be an interaction with that. A lot of our micronair problems are environmentally related, but when we get into varieties that have short staples, they also tend to be the ones that give us problems with high micronair. We've had some problems with color and trash that are, you know, related to defoliation and storms that we have nothing to do about. We can talk about that in more detail if you want. It's kind of similar to a lot of the issues that I see here. Obviously, I don't have the hurricane issues that you do, but you know, we have freezes and we also have a lot of our cotton that's harvested with strippers. And we do a better job of strippers maybe than we used to, but micronair color and leaf are big ones for us too. Do you want to discuss more about hurricanes? I don't know if that's something you even want to mention. I know you probably just dodged the first one this year, but you had a lot of experience with them in the years past. Yeah, and where it really gets us on quality is when we get seed sprouting, we get discoloration, get bad color grades. There's not a whole lot you can do about that. You know, you can maybe minimize it by controlling plant growth and avoiding rank cotton and, you know, get more sunlight and air movement. You know, defoliate that crop so you can get some sunlight in there to help dry things out. And then as far as defoliation, Tyson mentioned something that, you know, we've got some data to support is that, you know, it depends what field it is, what year in the environment. But let's just say, for example, you've got a crop that you maximize yield at about 40% open. It could be 60, it could be 30, depending on the year and the field and everything. If you delay defoliation after that, you know, micronary is certainly part of yield. So you continue to increase micronair, but not enough to make up for the weathering loss. So you get to the point of, you know, you're not increasing yield anymore, but your micronair is inching up. I certainly don't want somebody hurting their yields defoliating way too early to control micronair, but being timely with defoliation can help with that. Yeah, that's a great point. And we are going to discuss harvest aids in our next few episodes. That's something I'm looking forward to getting into more. So for each of you, Talk about your issues. What have you seen in terms of improvements in fiber quality? And I will say, I think we could probably all talk about staple improvements. You know, even in the short time that, you know, we've been looking at fiber quality, I think staple has improved quite a bit. Maybe beyond staple, are there other things that y'all have seen from fiber quality that's improved over the years? And we'll start back there with Tyson. And again, my experience is limited to more recent years, but when I started in Tennessee, and for the past several years before that, it seemed like higher mic, a little bit shorter staple, and high yields were linked. It seemed like some of our highest yielding varieties tended to be a little bit shorter staple and a little bit more mature. With the introduction of two varieties here for us, number one was Phytogen 444, which is not grown in the area now. Also, Delta Pine 1646, which is you know widely adaptable and grown, I think, throughout most regions. That was really the first variety that I'd had much experience with where it seemed like the length and micronair issues that we had seen with some of the earlier varieties, that link with high yield broke. And all of a sudden now we were seeing a very, very high yielding variety with not to push the point too hard, but longer staple falling more in that premium mic range. That was a real improvement. I'm you know excited to see that improvement in such a high yielding variety that was so widely adaptable. 
we're still trying to find now in the Mid-South really a replacement for that variety that has similar fiber quality and yield potential. But that was a big move forward. Previously, those varieties with that length and Mike package would be much, much lower yielding than some of the highest yielding cultivars we have. Good points, Tyson. Bob, same question to you. Obviously, you're in such a unique area having so much Pima acres, plus a lot of that you know, really high quality upland. What improvements have you seen in fiber quality over the years? I think the focus, I would assume, in some of the breeding programs has still been to select for improvements in primarily fiber lengths and strength numbers just because of what happens in the high quality market. And I do think that in a lot of the cases, you know, when we provided information to breeders or seed companies, you watch some of the varieties disappear that tend to be on the low end or especially on the high end in our area on Mike. So rather than seeing those reappear or continue, it looks like that's sort of a deal breaker in terms of kicking some of those out when they consistently come back with really high Mike numbers. The other one that I guess I would mention, I don't think it's true in the uplands, but it has been true in the Pimas, is that while it seems like the market and the industry embraces the idea of improved fiber length and strength, they don't want to pay for it. So you'll say you're at you know 1.45 and then you got something new that's 1.52 and they go, yeah, that's great. We'll take that. We'd like that. We'll buy that. But nobody ever gives you a premium for it. And so there's sort of a little bit of a disconnect, I think, when it comes to talking to the growers about notching up and trying some of the newer varieties, it almost kicks it back to, well, how does it yield? Because, I mean, that's going to be the most important thing. They're not going to make their selection just based on the fiber quality characteristics of the best to the newest and brightest because nobody's going to pay them more for them. So I don't know how you make that change. It hasn't happened certainly in the last 10 years in this area, I don't think. And yet some of the newer cultivars just seem to keep creeping up in length and strength numbers. That's a great point, Bob. That's something that, you know, every time we talk about fiber quality, it's always a good discussion with producers. And at the end of the day, it always comes down to, well, you know what? I get paid by the pound. Keith, the same question to you over your career improvements that you've seen. So early on in my career, strength was probably one late 80s, early 90s. And I think there were some premiums paid for that. But speaking on premiums, like Bob said, most of our growers, the premiums they get are pretty small if they're getting any. So they're really trying to avoid discounts more than they're trying to gain premiums. I remember in the late 90s meeting with some textile mills, and they were surprised to hear that the incentives in the market weren't enough to help drive variety choices in terms of fiber quality. I don't see that that's changed much. They tell me they're paying more for good quality cotton. Certainly, I think what Tyson said about fiber links, the increases he's seen in fiber links, and I really think that's related to some of the decreased high mite problems we've had. You know, we can't afford if we get a drought and we're going to have some high mite cotton, but that certainly, I think, has helped. Banksy, that's a great point, too. More mitigating risks and try to capitalize on the high end. I think it seems to be the theme for a lot of our producers. So speaking of fiber quality improvements, and I know Tyson's done some work and that's kind of sparked this thought in my mind was just asking you guys, what have you done research-wise? And it doesn't have to be specific to fiber quality. Maybe you were doing something else. I know a lot of us do variety trials and we look at fiber quality as part of that. But what have you seen from you know your work 
in regards to fiber quality, you know, research wise or anything you've done in your programs that focuses on fiber quality. And Tyson, I'm going to start with you because I know you did that big sort of Mid-South project with fiber quality stability, I believe. Yeah, Seth, we compiled all the large strip trials with similar entries over a two-year time frame and just tried to get at what the role of variety and environment played on fiber quality. And those numbers have changed a little bit over the years. The parameters that we've discussed, micronair, length, strength, the interesting find in my mind was now cultivar seems to be playing a little bit larger role than in years past because we've got some of these higher quality varieties on the market. Previously, you know, environment played a much larger role. So it didn't matter which variety you planted, your environment played a dominant role in micronair, in length, and in strength. And some of those things are shifting a little bit. And I was excited to see, to the point that Bob made earlier, yield or fiber quality. It was a lot of times the decision, you know, are we going to select a very, very high yielding variety or are we going to try to find a premium with fiber quality and potentially sacrifice some yield. And it looks like from that analysis that maybe, again, selecting a high yielding variety may mean you get a premium. And that was exciting to see in our research. You know, we spent a lot of time developing fiber quality results, just like all the cotton agronomists do from a variety testing standpoint. And spent a lot of time talking about that data, but really putting a number to how much each one of those parameters is determined by environment or variety was, I think, pretty impactful. Thanks, Tyson. Yeah, that was a lot of data that y'all sort of compiled there. It was a really interesting study. Bob, how about you, you know, out there with, again, I'm going to keep saying you got all the PEMA stuff. I think it's a really interesting place to be working on fiber quality. What have you worked on a lot? I can think of two things that are, you know, somewhat related to fiber quality, really fiber quality was something that we measured as part of a couple of overall studies. And one of them was focused on essentially IPM approaches for protection of early season kind of lower canopy fruit in Pima and being more aggressive about early fruit set and how that sort of shift in the distribution of where the set bowls on the plants were, how that would be affecting what you ended up with in terms of fiber quality, you know, more of a shift toward early consistent set through the season, as opposed to tolerating more losses early on, and then ending up with a later set crop. And we did that type of work over a number of years and certainly did see that there were some impacts. We ran into some poor quality fiber when we shifted the season toward you know, kind of more mid and late canopy fruit set as opposed to early and mid canopy fruit set. And that was relatively consistent in the Pimas. And part of that is because the amount of time that it takes to go from a bloom to a late season, you know, with average heat units is probably in the 60 to 65 day timeframe for late season blooms in Pima. And so a lot of those, you just flat out run out of growing season to be able to mature late season fruit. And I guess kind of along the lines of what Keith mentioned earlier about defoliation timing, Steve Wright and I had done a number of studies where we were looking again at Pima with making a choice for earlier first harvest aid timing. You know, we were going with notes above crack bowl recommendations that were in the three to four notes above crack bowl timing. And we shifted out and we did some studies where we looked at six, eight and 10 notes above crack bowl. Again, kind of referencing this idea that some years we tend to have more of a mid and late season fruit set 
And that puts you kind of at odds at being able to finish everything up going into the fall. And so we actually found in those cases that six nodes above crack bowl with Pima varieties was actually relatively safe, just a few percent drop in yield numbers, you know, probably in the order of just a couple of percent, two to three percent, and pretty good maintenance of fiber quality, and then actually being able to get out of the field maybe a week or 10 days earlier. And so some years that becomes pretty important because the Pima is such a long season variety that you can just keep thinking you're going to extend it another week, another week, another week until you get yourself in trouble. That's a great point, Bob. And that sort of work, filiation timing, I've always thought was really interesting. We've done some of that in Oklahoma too. Keith, how about you? A lot of work on fiber quality and stuff. I was kind of curious on some of your main findings. Like everybody here, probably we measure fiber quality parameters on all our studies. And things like fertility, I know there's some data out there to suggest that particularly potassium fertility can increase fiber strength and maybe length. But we have seen pretty minor differences to no differences in our fertility studies, growth regulator studies, things like that. Where we have seen differences is mostly in the defoliation. We've talked about the myconeer thing. The other places where we've seen difference in fiber quality with defoliation is desiccation. So using harsh chemicals where you've got a lot of juvenile growth and getting desiccation, end up with higher leaf trash. You know, we're in a defoliation area, not a desiccation area. And certainly growers look a lot of times to reduce the cost of defoliation, sometimes going with some harsher, cheaper herbicidal defoliants. And they can work in some cases, but if you're really pushing your nitrogen levels or the environment just leaves you with a lot of nitrogen left and a lot of heat left at the end of the year and you get tremendous regrowth, you know, desiccating that regrowth, it's easy to do and it can cause you problems. Thanks, Keith. So one last, I guess, just wrap up question. We talked about issues, talked about improvements. We've discussed each of your programs and the work you've done. So if you had just a quick recommendation for your producers and how to either optimize fiber quality or maybe reduce risks of quality discounts, what would that be? And Tyson, we'll start with you. If I had one recommendation, I would say definitely pay attention to that column at the very end of most of our tables that gives loan value. This fiber quality, you know, while it may not be as impactful as pounds per acre, penny here and a penny there can really increase the bottom line. And we're getting to a point now where you're not necessarily having to make big sacrifices in fiber quality from a yield standpoint. So it's a lot of numbers and it can be hard to grasp exactly what's going on with each of these parameters. But at the end of the day, they matter. Thanks, Tyson. Keith, how about you? I think the most consistent thing that a grower can do management-wise for quality is to pay attention to variety testing and the fiber quality data that comes from variety tests. And when you're growing these varieties on your farm, keep up with what happens on your farm in terms of fiber quality when you grow these varieties in your environment. Thanks, Keith. And then Bob, we'll end with you. Well, I have a couple of things that I would mention. One is that, you know, when we're growing at least Pima varieties, I think one of the big issues is to attempt to be vigilant enough and I guess aggressive enough in pest management that you try to shift toward having more early set fruit as opposed to depending on a late top crop. Most of our growers are really not in a position that they can cover costs with something like a two or two and a half bale yield. And so they really need to have 
both a combination of fiber quality and management for good fiber quality, but they have to really have a certain minimum amount of yield. And the way to get, at least in our area, I think under full irrigation, a little bit better yields and a little bit better fiber quality is, again, to have a shift toward early and mid-season produced fruit as opposed to just relying on a top crop. Just one thing, I don't know whether anybody talks about this in other parts of the U.S. as much, but boy, in all of our meetings recently, we have reminders from all the gin managers about plastic and trash as a fiber quality issue. And apparently, you know, in California, especially because of the changes in the weather and the dust and everything else, that just the environmental part, including plastic and trash, has been a big issue for the gins. Very good. And, and they really beat us up over it. Yeah, I think it's continued to be a pretty big issue. I think more folks are definitely aware of it, but you know, I know all the gins and I know a lot of folks at different universities and at USDA are doing a lot of work with trying to find ways to get plastic out. And obviously the easiest way to do it is to keep it out of our fields. And I know the focus of this is on, you know, plant characteristics and fiber quality, but I mean, that's certainly one that they talk about quite a bit related to fiber quality in our area. Yeah, no, that's a great I point. I hate to admit right. to yeah. being in a trashy location, but I guess I am. In our area, too, especially in hurricane years, where a lot of stuff gets blown into fields. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Thanks for bringing that up. So, guys, I appreciate your time. I know as we get closer to harvest across the belt, fiber quality is going to become maybe not the main focus, but we always start discussing trends in fiber quality as we go. And so I think this discussion will hopefully help us when we think about things to look out for in the future. I want to thank Cotton Incorporated for their support. You can find us on all the podcast apps. Subscribe if you want to. Give us a rating if you'd like. Let us know what you'd like us to discuss. That'd be great because sometimes our idea bank gets a little shallow. Actually, we got plenty. We just don't know if anybody else wants to hear what our ideas are anymore. So that was some suggestions. We'd love to hear them. Thanks to Keith Edmiston for the music. And thank you for listening. Uh-huh.